Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Like all of us play kickball. Kickball is one of the best games out there, isn't it? And here's what I love about kickball. You get a chance for a do-over. You know how you throw it, you kick it, and it goes out of bounds? You get to do it all over again. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could take that one rule from kickball, the do-over rule, and pull it someday into life? Wouldn't we all like a chance for a do-over? Don't we have words that we've said at times we wish we could just stuff back in our mouth? Choices we've made that are either unwise or, or sinful that we wish we could take back and do all over again? This morning, as we turn into our text, we're going to find one moment in history where it wasn't just a person that had a do-over, but the entire world had a do-over. If you're new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors. And as a church, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. And recently, we had gone through Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered the world. It was a small, little act of rebellion, eating some forbidden fruit. But we saw that sin it may look like an insignificant thing, but it turns out to be a very potent and destructive thing. Because in 1,600 years, we learned in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 that the world took an incredible turn for the worse as sin infected it and took over people's lives. The world became a violent place, a sexually perverse place, even a demonically possessed place. In fact, God decided that after waiting patiently for 1,600 years of people to repent, that enough was enough, and He destroyed the world through the flood. But even in the midst of His fully deserved justice, there was God's undeserved grace. He chose Noah and his family and a small sampling of all the animals, and He had Noah build an ark, and they put them all on the ark. And uh, where we left off last week, they had been on the ark for, for five months, 150 days, floating around. And I want you to think what it was like after 150 days on an ark that is filled with animals. We learned last week that there was at least 69,000 animals if you wanted to take two of every species and seven, seven, of, seven of every clean animal. Could you imagine what that place must have smelled like after five months when you went below deck? I don't know what stunk more, the animals or five months in a confined space with your in-laws. I mean, this was not a pleasant thing. Five months of floating and seeing nothing besides open ocean. This is where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 8, verses, verse 1 is what we pick up. On. And I'd like to ask you to take out your outlines and please follow along with your, either your copy of God's Word or the text is directly printed here in your outlines. God gave the world a do-over. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. 
At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the water came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro upon the, water, upon the waters, until, excuse me, until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird that moves that everything that moves on the earth, they went out by families from the ark. Uh, first question for you. Was this a local flood? <laughs> when you study the uh, people who talk about the flood, I am really surprised the amount of people who say, this was just a local flood. This was just a regional tsunami. And I'm like, okay, guys, hold on. I, I read my Bible this did not sound like a local flood. This sounded like a worldwide flood. In fact, even in the New Testament, Peter comes back, and Peter talks about this being a worldwide flood. Look what he says here. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by, me, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by this, the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And Peter says, guess what? The world was, the earth was formed out of water. That's back to, to Genesis. Remember that? Genesis chapter 1. He said... That's where the world came, out of water. And the same world was destroyed by water. And in the same way, the earth worldwide will one day be destroyed by fire. 
So folks, no matter what the uh, granola commentators say, this is a worldwide flood. And I call them granola commentators because they are all fruits, nuts, and flakes. Really, honestly, this is a worldwide deal. It really happened. The other thing you, you can notice here is it says all the mountains were covered <coughs> with water. And it also says that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. Now, you may not know much about Mount Ararat. That's in modern-day Armenia. Mount Ararat, excuse me, Ararat is 17,000 feet high. So, when the waters are higher than 17,000 feet above sea level and it lasts a year, is this a regional flood? Okay. Is this a region? Be Baptist. Respond to me. Is this a regional flood? No. It's obviously a worldwide flood. Second thing, we began by reading God remembered Noah, and that often brings up some questions. Like, did God forget Noah? That all of a sudden, after five months of a drift at the sea, He finally remembered Noah? Put yourself in Noah's shoes. It probably felt like God forgot you. Think about this, that you were... Um, you built the ark. You got everybody on the ark. You're thinking, okay, God, you shut the door on the ark. The waters come down. The waters go up. Everybody seems to die. And then you are floating, floating for five months with no shower. Floating. And it smells terrible downstairs with all the animals. You're with your in-laws, like I said earlier, and you're going, God, you know, um, the earth is destroyed. I don't see anybody out there. You know, can we get off the ark? You guys are flatlanders. You don't understand seasickness. Have you guys ever been out in a, on a big body of water? Any of you? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Jersey boy right there. Well, okay, I'm a Jersey boy. You know, I used to go to the Jersey Shore, plus I lived for 14 years on Lake Michigan, which is a very large body of water. And let me tell you, the absolute worst feeling is when you go out in a large body of water that has waves and you are in an unpowered boat. A powered boat is sort of different. It feels different. But just going up and down like this, you end up, Dave's going like, amen, brother. Thank you for the, for the nod of the head. It is the most nauseating feeling. It's somewhere ranges between flu and a stomach virus all rolled into one. And you know what? The only way to stop it is to get on land. And I am in my mind thinking about this. I am sure Noah is like hanging his head over the side of the ark. You know, for five months in his quiet time, he's like, oh, Lord, please, I built this boat, but now get me off this boat. I can't stand this thing. I'm nauseated. I can't go below deck. It smells terrible. It's going up and down. It's just really a difficult time in his life. That's the experience that, that Noah is going through. And then... It says this, God remembers Noah. And by the way, I want you to realize something. God had not forgotten Noah. This was an unpowered boat. It was a big, huge barge. It looked like a massive coffin. At any time, it could have run against the side of a mountain, torn a hole in it like the, like the Titanic, and sunk. Who was actually piloting that boat so it never hit a mountain? God. God had not forgotten Noah. But by when Noah was in the difficulty of being on the ark, which ends up being a total of a year, 
God had not forgotten Noah, but he felt like God was silent. When it says God remembered Noah, that's a Hebrew colloquialism that means God began to take action to relieve him of the stressful time that he was in. That's what it means. God began to take action to relieve him of the stressful time he's in. And I want you to notice something. Was it an instant answer to his prayer? No. It was another five months of the waters slowly going down. Now, here's something I think we can learn. What happened in the Old Testament is often what's happening in our lives. Isn't it true? Some of us are in times of our life right now where we feel just like Noah. We're very, in very uncomfortable situations, situations that we are praying that God would take us out of, situations where we're praying that God would take us through, and it seems like God is silent. It seems like He's not there. It feels like we're all alone. He, he, he steered us to a certain place in life that it feels like He just walked away. Maybe for you, it's be, you're a mother and you've been trying to conceive children. You've been praying and praying and praying, and God seems to be silent, and He doesn't seem to be answer your prayer. And you feel like He's left you alone. Maybe for you, it's a job. You've been praying for a job. You've been looking for a job, and, and, but God doesn't seem to answer your prayer. Maybe it's a spouse. You're a single person, and you've been praying that God would bring the right man or the right woman into your life, and it feels like you're in that sickening, just terrible time of your life when you're alone, and God has not responded to your prayers. Folks, number one, I want to tell you, you're not alone. Even when God does not seem to be talking to you in very tangible and special ways, He hasn't forgotten you, just like He hasn't forgotten Noah. He is carrying you through that really difficult time where you're on your ark and you're in your seas. He's carrying you through that. And number two, when He answers your prayer and He brings you through those things, you know, it may not be like right away. Maybe His answers to your prayers will take time. For Noah, it took another five months for the waters to go down. And even when the, uh, the boat finally rested on, the top, on Mount Ararat, you know, he's like ready to go out. He's sending out his own scouting team, you know, to check the land with the birds. He's like, oh, anytime can we get off now? But even then, he was still waiting for God's timing and for God's word as to what time it is right for him to get off. So, that's the first thing we learn. God didn't forget Noah. God hasn't forgotten us, even when we're going through those stormy times in life. The second thing we learn is how to respond when we come through those stormy times in life. When God gives us a do-over, what do we give Him? And let's pick up the text. Then Noah, this is after he gets off the ark, built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Here's my question. 
if you were Noah and you finally got off the ark after being on that smelling thing for an entire year, how would you spend your first day? Maybe it would be just out running so you could finally be free. Maybe it would be uh, laying out in the sun because I'm sure he had one of those ghastly white bodies after not seeing the sun for a year. Maybe he would want to go ride the horse to be free and, and play fetch with his dog. But notice what he did. Noah gets off the ark and he grabs a bunch of dirt and he grabs a bunch of rocks and he and he packs the whole thing together and he gets on his knees. His knees hit the dirt. And this is the first time, by the way, that we find in the Bible that an altar is made. And he takes some of these animals. And by the way, these animals are very precious. And for all you guys, just so you know, they're all right next to extinction. (laughs) He takes some of these clean animals and he sacrifices these precious clean animals on the altar to God. Like He doesn't get off the ark and go, hey, look at me. I did it. Man, I was the righteous guy. I did the building of the ark. I piloted the ark through this. I deserve to be here. No, that's not what happens. Because, you see, when he builds his altar and he offers these animals, it says he burns them completely on the, on the altar. And it's interesting when you go to Leviticus chapter 1, because Leviticus chapter 1 explains offerings. And this is what's called a whole burnt offering. And a whole burnt offering is a way of a worshiper saying to God, I am giving you everything, and I owe you everything. That was Noah's response after he got off the ark. No one was left but his family and the animals, and all he could say to God was, God, you're the one who brought me through this. You're the one who saved my family. I owe you everything, and I dedicate all of my life to you. Now, here's what we can learn from this. We talked a few minutes ago that each one of us, from time to time, are in those ark situations, really tough, difficult times in life, whether it's singleness or sickness or job, all kinds of things. And it's a hard time, and sometimes they're a long time. But when God brings us through those times... What do we do? Do we instantly get on to the next thing? Move right along, forget the past, or do we stop and worship and give God all the credit for rescuing our lives? The proper response when God brings us through those stormy, difficult seasons is to hit the deck with your knees and say, God, I owe you everything. It's only by your grace that I made it through, and I rededicate my life fully and completely to you. That's what Noah did, and that's what we need to do. When God carries us through these difficult situations in life that all of us go through. Now, it gets interesting. We get to assume new rules for the new world. This is fun stuff. So if you guys want some humor, here it comes. Okay, new rules for the new world. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Now the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, 
upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. And into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, and from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, a couple observations on these new rules that God gives for the new world. First thing, this says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which, by the way, sounds very similar to the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And by the way, I'm just picturing like Mrs. Noah, you know, she gets off the ark and there's nobody on it. And God says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And she's going like, this is going to be massive stretch marks. You know, I am going to be pregnant forever. This place is a big planet. This is a lot of work. Thankfully, I have my daughter-in-laws. You know, we can divide this task amongst us. And uh, even though we're having some fun with this, I do want to pause and be serious for just a moment. And I want to talk to you about the importance of being fruitful, multiplying, having children. You see, uh, the society around us says that being fruitful means you have maybe like one kid. That's Satan's plan, honestly. Satan's plan is that you would have almost no children. God's plan is that you would have a full house, that you would have many children. Children, the Bible says, are a blessing from the Lord. That's the biblical picture on this. And this is completely against what our society says. Look what this Scripture says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the room is a reward, not a liability. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children of one's youth. Notice this. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. And some of you like to freak out when you think about having a, a decent-sized family or, or a large family, and you're like, you know, how am I going to pay for them? You know, how am I going to feed them? How am I going to clothe them? You know, it, and I'll never be able to retire. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go and have all the money I want for retirement. I'm never going to be able to go to the golf course and sit down and, and, and relax. And folks, life is not about you. Our life is to be given as a sacrifice serving others. That's what we do as Christians. And it's such a wonderful thing to sacrifice your life for your children and to invest in your children. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. You know what that means? When you fill your quiver with arrows, with children, you shoot your arrows out from your hand. They go at a place and a time that you cannot be, and they make an impact for Jesus Christ that you cannot make. My friends, I want to talk especially to young families. Don't believe the lie of Satan to have a little tiny family. May God bless you. May you fill your house with children. Now, will it, 
Is it going to mean that you're probably going to have some tough financial times? Yes. But you know what? It's going to teach you to pray. And you're going to learn that you're not the one who puts the food on the table. You're going to learn that God is the one who puts the food on your table. God is the one who provides for you. God is the one who provides for your children. And just like God had not forgotten Noah in the difficult times, God has not forgotten you. He will carry you through. And I say this just to exhort you, especially young families, be fruitful, multiply, have a lot of kids. To God's glory. Second thing, the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. Now, you need to understand, before the flood, like the human-animal relationship was very different. You walked up to a deer and you wanted to pet the deer. It was like a human, like a huge petting zoo. Like nothing ran away from you. Wouldn't this be really cool? The pheasants, they, they didn't run away. You could come up to the pheasant and you could hold the pheasant. And there was great harmony between the animal kingdom and the, and the human kingdom. And everybody got along. And it was very cool that way. But all of a sudden, we come after the flood. We've got new rules for the new world. And God says, guess what? Everything's running from you now. And some of you are sort of bummed. And yeah, I like animals too, but I don't like that they run. But here's the good reason. The reason they run is because they're on the menu. It's true. It says, every moving thing shall be for food. So I don't know if you guys realize this. In the pre-flood earth, everybody's a vegan. It's true. Noah comes home after a hard day of building the ark, and guess what he has from his, from his wife? A massive salad. That's what he had. Everybody was a vegan. That's the way it went. But all of a sudden, we've got a whole different setup. Now you can hunt. Now you can, uh, like, kill. Now you can eat. Now the simple process is hunt, kill, grill. And all the men said, amen. There you go. That's it. We're getting good at this. You know, and, and for all you guys, by the way, this is the verse that you went emblazed on your wall and you put in your basement next to your gun case. You know, you know, God has given animals to eat for food. This is exactly what you want. You say, honey, I'm being biblical. I am going to hunting camp this fall. You know, I'm just following the scriptures on this one. And, and by the way, just so you know, I grew up in New York City where, like, the hunt, kill, grill thing it was not part of our lifestyle. And that, you know, the hunting was like the inner city guys shooting their friends. So this whole hunting thing was really weird for me. But I eventually moved to Michigan. I ended up in a really uh, poor area of Michigan where I discovered all the men are very biblical, that they go out and they hunt. And, and I, so I figured, I was actually having my quiet time. I ran across this verse, and it was a sort of a tough financial time. We're trying to figure out how to put food on the table. And all of a sudden, God told me how, as a father, I provide for my family and how to put food on the table. No joke. Went to Walmart, uh, bought camo, bought like the Walmart 30-odd-6, which, by the way, is something that's very cool about Michigan that you cannot do in Iowa. You get to use full metal jackets, long-range military-grade ammunition, which is great when you hit the deer because it completely processes it when you hit. So I went there and I called a friend. I said, hey, you know, I've got some time. Do you mind if I go hunt in your tree stand? He's like, go for it. Went up to the tree stand, sat there, three deer came out. Three bullets went out of my gun. Boom, boom, boom. And brought them home. And people said to me, well, were you freaking out that you were killing an animal? I'm like, no. I was just looking at how God told me to provide for my family. It's right here. 
saving on the food bill. Hunt, kill, grill. Now, some of you are, are like vegans, and, you know, I could respect you if you're vegans. I'm a Christian. Um, I just read my Bible. And it's okay if you want to be vegan because all that means is there's more meat for me. And it drives the price down for the rest of us. So, for all you who are vegans, that's fine, but I'm just following the Scripture on this particular one. Next, you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is, its blood. All right, weird caveat here. Like, why do you not eat flesh with its blood in it? Well, what it is, is God is saying, guess what? You know, an animal may kill another animal and eat it raw, but you're not an animal. We have, like, respect for human, we have respect for human life, we're going to see in a moment, and we have respect for animal life. You know, we, we, we butcher things. We, uh, we prepare things. We're not like animals. We don't just, like, sink our teeth into the side of, a, side of an animal. God says, if your steak is still mooing, it is too raw. Even God says you shouldn't eat it at that point. Honestly, it's a matter of respect for animal life. And then he says this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And he says, from any animal or from any man. Now, what this is saying, we've learned so far, is it's okay for us to kill chicken and eat chicken for dinner. It's okay for us to kill a cow and have steak for dinner. It's even okay to watch Alligator Hunter and eat alligator meat for dinner. We can eat any animal, technically, for dinner. But the one thing you don't kill and eat for dinner is another human being, right? They're like off the menu. Even if you take the blood out of it, it's still off the menu. But you have respect for life. And what the Scriptures say here is that human life is so sacred that if anything takes human life, it should lose its life. Remember in pre-fall times, we looked at Lamech. Lamech had no respect for human life. He killed people for minor insults. And God says on the do-over on the planet, no, we have great respect for human life. In fact, if somebody, uh, like an animal, comes and it takes and it kills a human being, it, there's really no question on what happens to the animal. Here's what you do. You dig a hole, you get your gun, and you fill the hole. That's the way it is with an animal. We have respect for human life because it's di different than animal life. Uh, Ingrid Newkirk, she is the leader of PETA, and she has said this famous phrase, as a rat, as a pig, as a dog, as a boy. And she says there's no difference between a rat, a pig, a dog, and a boy. And the reason she says there's no difference between animal life and between human life is because she doesn't have a Bible and she doesn't read her Bible. Because the Bible very clearly says there's a huge difference. So, like, if I'm driving down the road and a boy and his dog run out into the road and I have, like, have to hit one of them, there is no indecision in my heart as to which one I will hit. I don't need to, like, call a church meeting to have you guys discuss it. I don't need to, to flip a coin as to which one has to get hit if I have to hit one, I hit the dog. In fact, the Bible says, you know what? We could even eat him for dinner. Not that I would. I'm a dog lover. But the point is that human life is so incredibly sacred. 
that's going to be the new rules for the new planet and the new world for the do-over. And by the way, it also talks about here with capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, shall man by his blood be shed? And some of you, I know, don't like capital punishment. And I, I've read some of the arguments against capital punishment, and they say, how dare the state become as evil as a murderer and to take someone's life because they've taken a life. And I just look at my Bible, guys. The Bible's very clear. Because human life is so sacred, the just response for someone taking human life is that they lose their life. Now, that this is not something we carry out personally, not personal revenge. This is a responsibility of the state. talks about that in the book of Romans, chapter 13. But this is really, really important. Incidentally, talking about the sacredness of human life, uh, the Bible doesn't just say that life is sacred when it's out of the womb. The Bible says that human life is just as sacred when it's in the womb. Did you know that? Let me show you a, a verse from the book of Exodus. It says, When men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children, her, her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her may surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But notice this. But if there is harm to the child that is in the woman. Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That life in the womb is incredibly sacred in God's eyes. That those who would take life from the womb intentionally is an incredibly heinous crime. It's a crime worthy of the death penalty. Now, I, I want that to be clear, but I also know that there are some women in this room right now who have maybe even had an abortion. What does the Scripture say to you? The Scripture says, cling to the grace of Jesus. Run to the grace of Jesus who died in your place for your sin. Realize the severity of sin. And realize the severity of that sin, but also realize the incredible grace and forgiveness that is offered to Jesus who died for you and for your sin. I'm going to jump a little bit further here. I'm going to skip this next place. So it says here, uh, new promise. What new promise did God make to the new world? I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. I'm going to come all the way to the back. What can we do when we um, fail our do-over? Let's pick up this section here. The sons of Noah who went forth in the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine. He became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders. They walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. 
Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Noah, he's the man of incredible faith, incredible courage, incredible obedience. He's built the ark. He's piloted his family through the flood. He's off the ark, and things have settled down a little bit, and he's planted a farm, and he's got some grapes, and he put it in bottles, the grape juice, and he left it in his basement, and he left it down there for a, a long time. And uh, he drank it, and he got drunk. Now, I thought it's interesting because, you know, there's, this is the, like the second part of the Noah story. The Sunday school teachers only like the first part of the Noah story, don't they? They, we love to have our kids color the picture of the cute ark with all the animals out, and Noah has the little cotton ball beard, and then we have them sing Noah and the Arky Arky. Imagine if we had our Sunday school kids draw the second or color the worksheet for the second part of the Noah story, where Noah is naked, drunk on his couch with a bunch of empties on the side, on the floor. And instead of singing Noah and the Arky Arky, we're singing Noah is Drunky Drunky. It's the truth. But this is what I like about the Bible, because if this were fictional, it would have been, and Noah lived happily ever after. But it's not fictional. It tells the true story of Noah's real life, that Noah, even though he's a great man of faith, he faltered. He had a time when he made some really dumb choices. Then he sinned, and he got drunk, and he ripped his clothes off and laid naked on his couch. It's real life, guys. And then it gets interesting. Ham, his youngest son, comes in the door. Ham sees his dad naked and drunk, passed out on the couch, and what does he do? Gets out his smartphone, gets out a selfie stick, and like takes a picture of him with his dad, like making fun of him. Then he takes and he posts it on Facebook for all the rest of the family to know that the great patriarch, dad, is drunk, naked, on the couch. And all the grandkids are checking their newsfeed. And what's coming up out of Ham's newsfeed? The naked, drunk dad. And nobody can ever look at Noah the same. Because Ham has totally shamed his father. He's totally embarrassed his father. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, and he flies into a rage. Understandably so, especially when he checks his Facebook account. But notice what he does. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's firstborn son. Now, a lot of commentators spill ink on this, trying to figure out why he curses Canaan. Interesting thing. I'm just going to tell you a few things before we uh, sort of wrap this up. Uh, number one, Ham is Noah's, uh, 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 excuse not firstborn, lastborn son. He's Noah's lastborn son. Canaan falls in that same position. 
And there is nothing worse than when a father has to watch a son pay for his own sin. Isn't there? The second thing you need to realize is Canaan, as we're going to see next week when we go into the table of nations, Canaan is the father of the Canaanites. Shem, who is the one who is the blessed, is the father of the Shemites who becomes the Israelites. So as the Israelites go into the promised land, which is what they're reading here, they're reading this whole book, there's five books of the Pentateuch, what do they learn about the Canaanites, who they are commanded by God to kick out of the land? That they're cursed by God. The Canaanites are the fathers of the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the arch enemies of the Israelites. In fact, what they learn is <laughs> these people are cursed. Now, and guys of you who are in life group, when you get to life group tonight, uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 18 and notice the sexual practices of the Canaanites that they are specifically commanded to avoid and see how this ties directly into this story of nakedness. So here's the way we're gonna, I want to just wrap this up for you. You know, Noah, he had a chance for a do-over. Noah, he actually messed up the do-over. He, he fell right back into sin. But when you fall into sin, there's two ways that people can respond. There's people like Cain, who can make fun of you and beat you down. Or there are people like Shem and Japheth. They went and they covered their father's sin. Folks, God has given many of us do-overs in life, hasn't He? We're very grateful for Him. Many times we blow it. We blow it in our do-over. Satan is the one who, like Cain, wants to exploit our sin, destroy us from our sin. And we desperately need someone to cover our sin and take away our shame. And I got to tell you something, that God sent a man like Shem into our life, and his name is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin to cover and take away all of our nakedness and shame, even when we mess up our do-overs again and again. Amen? Amen. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this big piece of text. Thank you for all the little life lessons that we could learn along the way about how things worked in the past are many times similar to the way you're still working in our lives today. How times uh, on the ark, for instance, were long and hard, but you were with them all the way through. And even how your rescue took time. We realize, Lord, that many of us are facing long, hard, difficult times, but you haven't forgotten us, even when we don't hear from you. And that you are carrying us through. And even your answers to our prayers take time, and we submit to them. Thank you for giving us do-overs again and again. And thank you that even when we fail in our do-overs, because you love us so much, you sent Jesus through the line of Shem to cover our shame, our guilt, and our sin once and for all. And all God's people said, amen. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.